This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. You know, we're going to talk about career opportunities in healthcare, and there are good jobs. Staffing is still an issue. Our overall occupancies remain in the same. Even though COVID is going down, it's being backfilled with people doing surgeries, et cetera. The real strain on the workforce is still there, even though our COVID numbers are coming down. We've got Rose Johnson with us. She's the Administrative Director of Academic Partnerships and also a nurse leader in development at Medical City Healthcare. Rose, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Steve. You know, to set the stage, Rose, can you tell our listeners about kind of the strain on the workforce, especially that we experienced during the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. And it's so true that even prior to COVID-19, um, just because of the growth in the Metroplex and particularly in Medical City Healthcare's growth, it really did fuel the need for us to um, be strategic about finding those high caliber colleagues. Um, so we've really taken some steps um, to proactively. And one of those is our virtual recruitment. We use it a lot during COVID-19, but even before we found it to be a very good way for us to quickly and conveniently interact with candidates um, from North Texas and beyond. Another program that has been very successful for us, another innovative program is our Texas Two-Step program. It's been a longstanding, successful program within Medical City Healthcare to really help support our nursing pipeline. So how long has the two-step program been in place? So the Texas Two-Step program offers the opportunity for any Medical City Healthcare employee to pursue a career in nursing with no out-of-pocket costs. We partner with several of our local community colleges and um, our, the people who go through this two-step program will first obtain an associate's degree in nursing and then a bachelor's degree in nursing as, a, as the second step of the two-step program. program covers tuition, fees, but I think most importantly is the supportive advisement that our program students receive from our medical city healthcare colleagues. So really, regardless of where you start in our organization, if your desire is to become a registered nurse, the Texas Two-Step helps you in that dream. We've had people who started in housekeeping um, but wanted to be a nurse, and we've been able to support them through that journey. Rose, do you have strategies or programs in place to help a student nurse transition to a full-time registered nurse? Yes, that's an excellent question. And as a registered nurse myself, I can tell you that that transition is sometimes difficult. But we do have several programs in place to assist our nursing students in their transition. One of them is um, a dedicated education unit. We call that a DEU. It's a model in which nursing students are assigned to the same bedside nurse for each of their clinical rotations. 
and the nurse actually functions somewhat as a clinical teacher. We've had very, very positive results from our DEUs, and we're excited about expanding that. We also have a clinical immersion program, which provides extended hands-on clinical experience for those senior nursing students prior to graduating. And we've recently extended that to our surgical services area because we know that that's a place that many nursing students are sometimes interested in but don't have a lot of time with during school. And, of course, we have internships and a nurse residency program that supports our nursing, our new nurses throughout their entire first year as a professional nurse. You know, you mentioned in your answer clinical rotation. What does that mean? Ah, uh, Yes, it's important that our nursing students have a, a foundation of anatomy and physiology understanding the patient and um, how the body works, but it's equally important that our nursing students have hands-on time with patients. So that's what they get during clinical rotations. They're typically partnered with a registered nurse, and they spend time actually helping that nurse take care of the patients. It's a, it's a very important part of um, the journey to become a nurse. Do you know if there are any efforts underway to get young people interested in nursing programs? Yes, um, and at Medical City Healthcare, we actually have um, several programs in place for people who have absolutely no healthcare experience. One of those, and one of our, our newest and most innovative programs, is a patient care tech apprenticeship program that really provides opportunities for people who have have no previous healthcare experience to become a patient care tech or PCT with no out-of-pocket expenses because we cover their expenses, but they're also able to work as a patient safety attendant while they're completing their courses to become a patient care tech. So this is a great way to, to introduce people into healthcare. And of course, we would love to see them continue um, and perhaps join the Texas two-step program to continue on to be a registered nurse. But this is a great entry-level program. With the critical staffing shortages, should we be educating high schoolers about opportunities in healthcare? Actually, yes, Steve, I think it's going to be imperative for us in healthcare to reach students younger and younger. And we are, we've always had a relationship with the Health Occupation Students of America. You know, we love um, acronyms in healthcare, so we refer to them as HOSA. But throughout the Medical City Healthcare Division, we, we host several HOSA students, which is a great way to expose students to healthcare careers. But even more recently, we're partnering with the Texas Education Agency for a new program entitled PTEC, another acronym that stands for Pathways in Technology Early College High School. Um, this is a great initiative that provides a learning path to a healthcare career for high school students. Um, students in this program graduate ready for the workforce in those high demand jobs, and they partner with a high school, a community college, and an industry partner 
that offers them the opportunity to earn both a high school diploma and a free two-year post-secondary degree, all while in high school. So again, this is in partnership with the Texas Education Agency, who provides the funds for the school, and the nonprofit Educate Texas actually manages the program. So we've recently um, started at Medical City Arlington as our first industry partner with Bowie High School and Tarrant County Community College. But we're excited about this program and working quickly to expand because to your point, we think that this is going to be so important that we expose um, our high school students to those healthcare careers. And more on the expanding field of healthcare careers next when we come back on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversation with Rose Johnson. She is the Administrative Director of Academic Partnerships and Nurse Leader Development at Medical City Healthcare, where they have this amazing program that we mentioned in our last segment called the Texas Two-Step Program, where a nursing degree is free for their employees. You heard that right. If you missed our last segment, it's on our podcast. Just search up all the podcast players for the human side of healthcare. Here is Steve Love now continuing our conversation with Rose Johnson. You know, Rose, I'm going to put you on the spot. You mentioned you are a registered nurse. Can you tell Thomas and me how you became interested in healthcare as a career? I've been a registered nurse for 32 years. My mother was a career educator, teacher. I never thought of nursing until I had my second child and the nurse that took care of me seemed to just enjoy her job so much. So I asked her about nursing, tell me more, and she did. She actually um, had recently graduated from El Centro College And so when my little baby was six weeks old, I took her to El Central College and I enrolled in my prerequisites for nursing. It's been a great career. I would would never think of doing anything else. So thanks for the question. I'm going to pivot a little bit and ask you another question and put you a little on the spot. We went through the work with academic partnerships, and that's part of your job title. But how do you help develop nurse leaders? You're also under nurse leader development at Medical City Healthcare. Yes. So I, I, my role, I, I look at my role as working with two transitions. I work with the transition from um, nursing school to becoming a professional nurse. But then I also look at that. I help with that transition from becoming a bedside nurse to a nursing leader. Again, a difficult transition um, because we often promote people in nursing into leadership positions because they were excellent bedside nurses. But as you know, um, leading people is a a whole new ballgame. So I actually help with that transition by mentoring and providing programs to help our our bedside nurses move from the transition to bedside nurse to, to nursing leader. Another um, nursing leaders are something that we're going to have to continue to make sure that we have a good pipeline as well. So I really enjoy working with both of those transitions. 
Hi, Rose. This is Thomas. So question, through your eyes, can you walk us back to the time period of two years ago, Thanksgiving, Christmas, holidays, 2019? There was no such word in the dictionary beginning with a C. (laughs) (laughs) How is life different for you today as a nurse professionally? When you park your car and walk in the building, how is it different for you? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, besides the obvious, prior to 2020, we didn't wear masks all the time in the hospital, but masks are now mandatory in the hospital. It, it reminds me somewhat of the um, HIV crisis in the 80s when I went into nursing. We did not wear gloves for every patient interaction prior to that. But we do now. It's just part of our personal protective equipment, right? We wear gloves for almost everything. So the mask with every patient interaction, I'm not sure if that'll ever go away, Um, but that's definitely been um, a, a change. Otherwise, I think that things are slowly returning to normal um, in the hospitals. I think that the staffing challenge is probably the biggest difference between now and Thanksgiving of 2019. We are taking care of the same amount of people with sometimes fewer staff members. And that has caused a a burden on the um, existing staff members. So to me, that's the biggest pain point right now coming on the other side of the pandemic. And I think also we are also very guarded because we've gone through so many surges, I think four officially, and we're just guarded that, you know, the next one might be around the corner. We're hopeful um, we won't see another surge, but we're all very much guarded because we've seen so many. That's an awesome description. Thank you, because I, Steve, I don't know about you, I felt what she was saying. <laughs> it was like, wow. Absolutely. No question about it. It was a great answer. So go back now to March, April 2020. COVID is something we are just beginning to understand. What was that phase like for you and your team? Was that just, you know, what comes to my mind is all of a sudden your eyes get really wide one morning and you go, oh my gosh, we are in the middle of something that we have never experienced before. Was it just kind of where you, you had to throw the book out and you had to just adjust and work together as a team and cover for each other? What was that like? Somewhat surreal. Um, I, I think of it as, remember, we all know where we were during the 9-11 attacks. You know, you'll never forget the feeling. You'll never forget that moment. There were several of those moments um, in March of 2020 when we had to stand up a command center and we were on calls several times a day trying to figure out what we needed to do. Looking at the numbers and the projections at that time, it was scary. And then you would go home and you'd look at the news and see what was happening in other parts of the country, and it it really made it a scary time. We we just didn't know where we were headed, um, and so yeah, it was it was very very surreal. And then let's look to the future. 
let's just kind of complete this whole loop. Obviously, we know the staffing situation will be resolved by more people going to nursing school and deciding that they're going to chip in and help, almost kind of like people contributed during World War II, right? We helped the country just because. It's almost that kind of a duty and honor kind of thing, isn't it? Right, right. And the the good thing is nursing schools will have reported increased enrollment. So I think you're absolutely right. Good. Then that need is starting to be fulfilled in the side of the pipeline that it needs to be because you Mm -hmm. can't just create a nurse in three weeks. Right. The nurse tree is empty. Yeah, exactly. So the final thing is, what would you advise to patients, people that are going to need to come to the hospital, whether they realize that as they're listening to us right now or not, just to tuck away in the back of our mind until that nursing tree gets full again, what expectations would you advise us to have if we have to come see you? Well, you know, I think that what we saw during COVID when patients were staying away we never want to see that again. Um, we encourage patients to to seek medical care, that hospital is a safe place to be. I think people were afraid to come to the hospital at one point. Um, the hospital is a very safe place to be. Of course, any care that's needed, we encourage you to, um, to get the care. Nursing is a, we're a resilient workforce. We're a committed workforce, not just nursing, but I think healthcare in general. We're resilient. We're committed. We're going to be there for the patients. And I agree with what you said. That the pipeline will get filled. There are going to be some um, some pain points, but the pipeline will get filled. But if you have to come to the hospital, please know that the hospital is there for you and it's a safe place for you. You know, I'm going to pivot one more time and ask you, what questions should I have asked you that I didn't? Or at least, is there a message you would still like to convey to our listeners that we have not touched on? Well, I think that, you know, I appreciate the time. I think that this is such an important topic. Um, I do think that healthcare will continue to Um, deal with staffing shortages for quite a while as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think the staffing shortage is the the other pandemic, Um, but I'm, I'm just excited to see this as a time for us to just really be innovative um, and introduce healthcare perhaps to a whole new audience. Um, Healthcare is a, is an, excellent career, a very rewarding career. And I think that this is a great opportunity for us to introduce it to people who perhaps have never thought about a career in healthcare. So it's an exciting time for us, even though it's, it's a somewhat stressful time for us. So I do appreciate the time that you've given me today. That's Rose Johnson from Medical City Healthcare. Be sure to check out their program, The Texas Two-Step, if you are interested in pursuing a nursing career. Now, when we come back, Dr. Nicholas Madsen, he's the co-director of the Heart Center at Children's Health. We are going straight into the human side of healthcare when we come back to talk about the single largest birth defect in the United States and what Children's is doing about it. That's next on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. And now we're going to talk about the number one birth defect in America. And this is going to surprise you. And we are delighted that we've got with us Dr. Nicholas Madsen, who's the co-director of the Heart Center and the chief of cardiology at Children's Health. Dr. Madsen, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. You know, our listeners out there may think of hearts and heart conditions, but could you explain to them what are some of the most common reasons why a child may need to get care at the Heart Center at Children's Health? You bet. It is uh, much more common than people realize, um, unfortunately, but we are certainly honored and privileged to be here to serve. Um, it is the most common of all birth defects, uh, impacting about one in every hundred uh, children born. And of those children, a great many of them require some sort of intervention in their first year of life. And those interventions have to do with the structure of their heart. Um, really, we talk about it as the plumbing. And there are times where the heart is just not formed in the way that is intended. And um, we are here to help in those situations, be they surgical interventions or sometimes uh, potentially less invasive interventions. On top of that pl uh, plumbing situation, there's the sort of electricity in the heart and, and people hear about heart rhythm disorders or maybe uh, someone in the family has uh, palpitations or something of the sort. And, and so we're here to deal with those types of conditions. And, and then sometimes it is the more common and in older children who are worried about chest pain or uh, have an episode of passing out or, or the like. So did I hear you right, Dr. Matson? Problems with the heart are the most common birth defect. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. Uh, often not understood that way. We think of heart conditions to be something that impacts us in our later decades of life. But unfortunately, there are a fair contingent within our pediatric years that, that need the benefit of a heart center uh, like the one we have here in Dallas. Do you ever intervene pre-birth? And let me explain my question. You know, when prospective parents look at their family history, if they perceive a problem, Dr. Matson, could they come to you pre-birth to discuss this with you? Absolutely. Uh, we meet a great many of our uh, patients uh, while still in the womb, or, or, or that is to say we meet mom and dad. We uh, are able to identify a great many heart abnormalities now uh, during some of the fetal ultrasounds, uh, like you mentioned. And there are times where we begin even some of our interventions, uh, be they medical or otherwise, at that phase. And certainly uh, for all of those uh, moms and dads, we're helping them with the transition, um, with understanding the condition uh, that the child will have, and certainly uh, supporting them through that phase of pregnancy as as you, you all might imagine, uh, pregnancy is, is stressful enough for moms and dads. And to learn that your child has a heart condition uh, ratchets that stress up a great deal. And, and we are here to, to be supportive in exactly those situations, both with education 
about what will happen and what is happening, uh, but also to talk about how to um, manage those, uh, you know, those new stressors and how we really are going to be there to partner with the family for a lifetime, not just at delivery, not just at surgery, but to provide the supportive uh, and medical care necessary uh, over the, the years of that child who will become an adult. You know, that's great information. One question uh, also, are there any types of interventions that you can do medically with the fetus prior to birth? There are there are some actually where um, where medically there's opportunities to intervene. The most uh, well, let me give you a common example. Believe it or not, babies, un, uh, you know, an unborn uh, fetus will have heart rhythm disturbances, and their heart will be racing along at rates uh, that are not as healthy for that uh, that growing child. And and so we will give mothers medications that we intend to uh, make their way to that uh, unborn child to help control their heart rate so that the last month or two or three of pregnancy, as it were, are as uh, safe and and healthy as we all intend them to be. You know, in looking at pediatrics, I know it's important, and I'm sure you explain this to parents all the time, but for our listeners, how important is it that pediatric heart patients get the right care at the right time in the right place to have the optimum outcomes? Yeah, I think it's it's a a great question. I I really appreciate it. Even though we talked about uh, pediatric uh, heart disease being more common than people realize, it is still less common than other conditions and really requires the services of a specialist. But I, I will say, I'll take that to another level. It is not a type of care that benefits from a singular specialist. You really want to be part of a larger team where there are those who are specialists in the way the heart pumps or the woes that are specialists in the way that the heart is put together or the, those that are specialists in the electricity of the heart or those who are specialists when they're young or those who are specialists when they're old. And, and you know, the, so much of the, the right place, right time comes from having a team to help navigate uh, all of those elements. And then we do everything we can to bring that care close to home. Uh, We want to be able to meet families uh, where they are, whether it means having clinics out in the communities to avoid long commutes, um, or taking advantage of some of our, you know, more recent technologies that we've all become much more accustomed to, like telemedicine and, and really uh, joining the families right in the living room. There are a number of conditions where the child, especially in the newborn or young infant period, is vulnerable or fragile to the degree where we want to continue to monitor some of their activities at home. And so you really want a team that can facilitate that where we have sent you home because home is where uh, rest and, and family are, um, but we still want to keep track of how well you're growing and, and what the heart is doing. And, and so bringing some of those technologies into the home um, has become an important part of, of how our heart center conducts our care. You know, you've talked about the team approach and a lot of the great work that you're doing. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners to kind of Help them look behind the curtain at the Heart Center at Children's, how it works, and how people receive good quality care. 
Sure. One of the things that we take great responsibility or one of the areas where we take great responsibility is not only in the day-to-day care, which of course is premium and paramount in terms of of where we we, uh, place our energies. But we see it also as our responsibility to drive innovation and to drive new programs and new uh, clinical offerings. Um, This is a, a vibrant city full of great technology and great advancements. And we think that the Heart Center here at Children's Health should match that energy and should match that capacity. And so we spend a large portion of our days in developing these new programs in concerts with other members of the university system or other partners in the community. Um, We think that uh, it is very important that every child, no matter the condition, can find exactly the care that they need to be as healthy as possible here at the Heart Center. And we are quite proud of our history of innovation. Um, It goes back several decades and we look forward uh, and look out to the horizon for many new discoveries in the days and years to come. You know, you mentioned the great work you're doing in innovation and you just talked a little bit about the future. If you look in your crystal ball, can you share with our listeners some of the innovative treatments you think for pediatrics that are potentially on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. I think we see opportunities to intervene in ways that are potentially less invasive, uh, transitioning from procedures that have been purely surgical in the past to something uh, more minimally invasive, where uh, your hospital stay is maybe just 23 hours as opposed to what was traditionally three weeks. Um, We see opportunities to create a more precise care for the the right patient. We talk a lot about precision medicine and how do we individualize therapies so that we are targeting the exact child's uh, condition and what they need. And, And we see a lot of that being born out of what we're learning about genetics. And so how do we combine what we see with the naked eye with what we don't see with the naked eye, with which such as the child's genetics, so that we're giving them exactly the right medicine or that we're performing the surgery at exactly the right time. Um, and then we are offering new technologies all the time, learning from innovative programs from outside of medicine that bring new technologies and, and you know, reflections on that would be things uh, within the ultrasound world and making our ultrasounds even more clear and more precise or the ability to take more accurate images of the heart, in our case, through technologies and MRI, but even developing new processes across MRI that allow us to not only take pictures of uh, where we may find a problem, but to intervene during those periods of time when we're taking those pictures. Um, we are we are grateful we've moved on from the days of, of being able to to take a simple x-ray and to describe a problem and had to have no resources to address that problem. We're well past that at this point, but I think we can get even further uh, and by by doing so, uh, treating uh, more kids with the care that they need and to minimize complications and uh, some of the uh, untoward effects of historical interventions uh, moving forward. We're going to continue this conversation. Not only is it important for families who need it, but also we're talking to the co-director of the Heart Center at Children's Health, a world-renowned program, Dr. Nicholas Madsen. And if you missed some of this interview or our previous interview with Rose Johnson from Medical City, 
you can catch our podcast. It's on all the major podcast players, including the Odyssey app. Just search any of them for the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with the co director of the Heart Center at Children's Health. This is Dr. Nicholas Madsen, a man who oversees a program that gives hope to so many families when they especially need it, when their precious little newborn's heart isn't working right. This is truly the human side of healthcare. Here's Steve going back a ways in time to talk about a disease that we don't hear about that much anymore with kids, fortunately. When I was in grade school, I had a really good friend, and unfortunately, he got strep throat really bad, and his parents took him to the doctor. He ended up developing rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart condition. Do we still have to deal with that today? It's a great question, Steve. There are still pockets of it in ways that are very unfortunate. Rheumatic heart disease is an example of a condition that uh, we could, with more complete approaches, uh, largely eradicate. And and one of the ways which we've made great progress is with antibiotics and the timely uh, application of those antibiotics. But there are still communities where the strep throat goes untreated, and so then the risk factors increase. However, our ability to then intervene on those heart valves that are uh, really debilitated and destroyed by the rheumatic disease is much greater than it used to be. And there will be times now where those heart valves that we are using will no longer be the uh, very basic sort of metallic structures of yesterday, but instead these will be new structures that can grow with the child, that can develop with the child without any risk of rejection or clinical uh, decline in performance over time. We've come a long way. Rheumatic heart disease is fortunately not anywhere near as common as it used to be, but there are still pockets of it. I think it is a great example of, of how we can, we can partner um, to prevent disease more effectively. And then in the rare times that disease does present itself, um, we can give a much better, more directed therapy with less complication and uh, hopefully easier healing so kids can go back to doing what they should be doing. That's right. You know, I was I was going to ask you about, unfortunately, sometimes in pediatrics, you have to do a heart transplant. What is the youngest age that you've ever heard of, of a child receiving a heart transplant? We're very fortunate uh, here in Dallas that we have one of the most well-established uh, pediatric heart transplant programs in the country. And this was really led by some pioneering work of Dr. David Fixler who has been part of the Children's Heart Center for 50 years. We celebrated his anniversary uh, with, with the hospital uh, last summer. And he has led incredible innovative programs um, that has really cemented the Heart Center uh, on the international map as it relates to transplantation. We, because of those gains and over time and in partnership with others, um, are now able to do transplants at any age, even in the newborn period uh, when cases arise that demand it. Um, and so there really is no 
lower age uh, limit at this time. Of course, we do whatever we can to avoid heart transplantation um, and to try to fix issues as they occur. But when that is not the case, it remains one of the greatest gifts a a family can receive when their child is is, um, in such a bad way that this is the only uh, remedy. And um, we have been very successful over a great many decades and look forward to continue to provide that bedrock of service uh, for our community. You know, that's excellent. And obviously, I'm not a clinician, so I know this sounds like a very awkward question, but let's assume you do have a newborn and unfortunately you have to do a heart transplant. Are there limitations on who the donor can be? Could it be an adult or would it have to be a pediatric? There are size restrictions, as you might imagine, and uh, and size matching is an important aspect of of uh, getting the right donor for for the right patient, and and uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about that, and and we spend time thinking about other parameters to ensure that not only is the donated heart well placed in the chest, but that it will be well tolerated by the child. Um, you know, our body is, is perfectly designed to see what is native and what may be foreign. That is how we fight infections. Um, and so as we uh, manage and support our children who've had heart transplants, we spend a lot of time thinking about that aspect of care to ensure that that transplanted heart is performing without really any differentiation from a from a, a native heart or a, a child with a typical situation. Um, but yes, to go back to your original question, getting the size right and getting the timing right uh, matters a whole awful lot. You know, Dr. Matson, you've done such a remarkable job, a wealth of knowledge to the questions I've had. Some of our listeners out there may be families that are really facing a pediatric heart diagnosis. What message would you send them? We would start with a message of of empathy and compassion. Uh, We understand uh, the stressors that they're feeling. Uh, We understand uh, some of the thoughts and concerns that they have. Uh, The Heart Center aims to be a partner in uh, the journey uh, for their child or for their family member. Um, w- the, the Heart Center uh, at Children's Health has been here for decades, and we aim to be here for many more decades serving our uh, local community. And, and um, we consider it an honor, honor and a privilege to do so. And um, should those needs arise, uh, we hope you reach out to us, and uh, we look forward to um, understanding uh, exactly what the ailments may be and providing the best opportunities for, for better health uh, in combination with the most cutting-edge technologies. Dr. Madsen, this is Thomas. I'm a grandfather of a little three-month-old precious baby girl. Congratulations. Thank you. The question I have for you is, if we could discuss this for a minute, is uh, the whole family got covid mm basically went to their lungs. And I'm not so sure in this era of Omicron that they didn't find some lingering Delta because it was more severe than the lighter Omicron symptoms that some have reported. Mm -hmm. And the little baby got it, even though her mom was fully vaccinated during uh, pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She had a really deep cough for a full two weeks. Now, I know that we don't know any child or any adult five years down the road that has had COVID, what's going to be there? We don't know. It's only two years old. But 
from everything that you could speculate, do you think that these infants that are getting COVID could have lingering heart issues? Um, it's a great question. Glad to hear that she seems to have rounded the corner and is on the mend. And, and uh, I imagine the family was feeling a, a great deal of, of stress. And so certainly my sympathies. Um, also want to commend the family. It sounds like uh, there was everything was done in terms of preparation and, and trying to avoid uh, any of these uh, unfortunate circumstances where the virus is, is making its its way around the family. What I would say is exactly to your point, I would acknowledge that we have never had anyone to date who's had uh, a five-year history of having a COVID infection, you know, five years ago. So we, we can't do anything but speculate on, on what that means. However, we have been managing the underpinnings of those types of infections in babies for as long as babies have been around. And our body's ability to heal, our body's ability to deal with inflammation and combat that inflammation and then uh, recover from it is unbelievably refined and developed. Um, so again, while I don't know anything about the five-year trajectory of COVID, because we just haven't had that experience, other viral infections, some of which cause inflammation of the heart, some of which cause pneumonia, some of which cause similar types of symptoms, we see tremendous ability to recover uh, in, in infants and toddlers and, and children alike. Um, and so that is certainly what we're rooting for, obviously, um, and, and very much hoping for. Uh, and while I would love to know more to be more in, which would enable me to be more specific, I would feel some degree of reassurance that the body is an absolute, an absolute miracle, really. And uh, healing is really one of its specialties. Wow. Thank you for that great answer. And that is not only very informative, but also quite reassuring. And I'm sure there are some of you that have been in that position, too. This has been Dr. Nicholas Madsen, the co-director of the Heart Center at Children's Health. Real pleasure having him on our show today, Steve. Absolutely. We'll see you next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.